We're going back to the 1980s today. The early 1980s. The chilly, tense, paranoid 1980s. Where we went about in our neon leg warmers and eyeliner and Ford Sierras. With one ear cocked for the four minute warning. Okay, let's not pretend we constantly waited for nuclear war. You might have felt the shudder of dread if you saw something on the news, or if you lay awake at night and heard a plane droning low over the house. But it would be impossible to live in constant nuclear dread, in total paranoia, utterly convinced that the sky was always about to explode in a searing flash of white. No, you'd have to be utterly paranoid. You'd have to be Well, you'd have to be Yuri Andropov, head of the KGB and then leader of the Soviet Union. A man totally convinced that America was planning a devastating and sudden nuclear attack to wipe out the Soviet Union. In this episode, we'll look at Andropov's paranoia and his plan to spy on Western cities, looking for signs that this nuclear attack was indeed being prepared. This was known as Operation Ryan. But we won't be dismissive of Andropov's paranoia. We'll try to look fairly at why he and his cronies in the Kremlin were so nervous and so convinced that nuclear war was coming. By all accounts, the Soviet takeover was meticulously planned and skillfully executed. But it has not been clear just how the Soviets were able to set up their coup without the Afghans realizing what they had in mind. There are various reasons why the early 1980s were so tense. In the 70s, we had enjoyed a nice dip, a nice relaxation in the Cold War, known as détente. But this period, perhaps inevitably, drew to a close, and the Cold War began to freeze again. One of the main reasons, of course, was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in late 1979. If you want to know more about that war, I recommend to you the oral history by Svetlana Alexeyevich called Boys in Zinc. If you follow me on Twitter, you will know that I am almost obsessed with her books. They are incredible. I recommend every single one to you. But Boys and Zinc is her oral history of the Soviet war in Afghanistan. She was there on the ground interviewing people who were there and then later interviewing people at home, including the grieving mothers and widows. I reviewed the book for the Sunday Herald, but my first draft was sent back to me by the editor. She said it was simply too... I can't remember her exact wording, but it was too horrific or too... Gory, um, I had to trim back some of the more horrifying elements of it because people might simply stop reading it. The book is horrifying, of course it is. How could it be anything else? It's an oral history of a modern war. Of course it's gory and horrifying. Nonetheless, it's the truth of that war and I recommend it to you as I do all of her books. I am a complete cheerleader for Svetlana Alexeyevich. 
I'll read you a short extract from Boys and Zinc. We came here to build socialism, but they fenced us in with barbed wire. You mustn't go out there, lads. No need to spread the word about socialism. There are special people to do that. At heart, of course, that they didn't trust us. I talked to the shopkeeper. You weren't living right. We'll teach you now. We're going to build socialism. He smiled. I was buying and selling before the revolution, and I'm still buying and selling now. Go home. These are our mountains. We'll work things out ourselves. We drove round Kabul, and the women threw sticks and stones at our tanks. The little kids swore and cursed in Russian without any accent. They shouted, Russian, go home. What are we here for? They were firing at us with a grenade launcher. I managed to swing the machine gun round and that saved me. The shell hit me on the chest. Otherwise it would have smashed straight through one arm and all the shrapnel would have hit the other. I remember it was such a gentle, pleasant sensation and no pain at all. And there was someone shouting somewhere over my head, Fire! Fire! I pressed the trigger, but the machine gun didn't make a sound. Then I looked, and my arm was dangling loose, scorched black all over. It felt like I was pressing my finger on the trigger, but there weren't any fingers. So the Soviet war in Afghanistan in late 79 provoked a terrible um, worsening of relations between the Soviet Union and the West. And then, of course, as we know, Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president. And he was far more abrasive towards the Soviets than Jimmy Carter had ever been. Reagan was very clear and very brash in his assessment of the USSR. We know that later on he referred to them as an evil empire. And he absolutely loathed communism. And he wasn't shy about making that clear. He also hugely increased America's defence spending, which naturally made the Soviets nervous, particularly as this was happening whilst they were bogged down, trapped even, in Afghanistan in a war they simply could not win. Reagan also instigated, and here I must confess I have some sympathy for the poor commies, a series of needling and nagging and unnerving psychological operations known as PSYOPs against the Soviet Union. US planes would tear towards Soviet airspace heading straight for them and would only peel away at the last moment. This was done of course to test Soviet defences and see what their level of preparedness was. But it left the Soviets feeling rattled and deeply nervous. What was this new American regime planning with its massive spending and its exhausting, constant, worrying psyops? So we have a new and very strident anti-communist government in America and an exhausted, jittery, paranoid one in the USSR. We know about Reagan in the White House, but who was in the Kremlin? Old Leonid Brezhnev, that's who. He'd been in power since the 1960s and was, by now, old and tired. One of his chief advisors, of course, was the head of the KGB, Yuri Andropov, and he succeeded Brezhnev on the latter's death in 1982. Brezhnev seems to have been a bit of a character. He was a physically distinctive man, 
big and hefty with those massive eyebrows, but his successor and drop-off seems to be the opposite. He is surely the epitome of the bland, anonymous, yet menacing Soviet bureaucrat. There is a famous photo of Brezhnev in his swimming trunks. Impossible to imagine the eerie Andropov in trunks. Impossible to imagine him in any guise other than that of his official photos, which show him in his suit with his smooth grey hair, glasses and expressionless face. Of course, he wasn't as mild and smooth as that image suggests. For example, he was Soviet ambassador to Hungary during the very bloody 1956 Hungarian uprising. And it was he who recommended to Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, that force had to be used to suppress the Hungarians. And this earned him the nickname the Butcher of Budapest. So Andropov took power in 1982 and having come from the KGB, from a background of spying and secrecy, he was deeply paranoid, saw conspiracies everywhere and was convinced, utterly convinced, that the Americans were preparing for a nuclear attack. Now I said at the beginning that I'd try to be fair to Andropov and his paranoia and it's here that we must mention the war. We must always remember and try to understand that the Soviets were invaded by the Nazis in a surprise attack in 1941 and this came as a deep, deep shock to Stalin and the people. Again, for some kind of understanding of this, turn to Svetlana Aleksevich, particularly for her books The Unwomanly Face of War and her latest one, Last Witnesses, both of which are unsparing and telling us of the shock and the absolute horror of Barbarossa and what it did to the people. The invasion of 1941 inflicted a deep psychological wound on the Soviet Union, not to mention of course the very obvious and incalculable physical damage, but the psychological wound was so deep and it persisted and so we can assume that every Soviet leader and maybe most Soviet people thereafter, were determined, furiously so, that this must never happen again. Never again must we be caught in a surprise attack and invaded by an enemy. Never again. So let's assume that that lay at the core of Andropov's paranoia and the paranoia of the men around him who were advising him. It happened once before, It could happen again, and we must be totally prepared so that we are never again caught in a surprise attack. So Andropov looked at America and saw massive increases in defence spending. He saw them testing his country's defences. He saw their president lashing out against his country and their communism. And he became convinced that it was going to happen again. Here was 1941 coming around again but this time the Soviets would be prepared because he had launched Operation Ryan Ryan stood for Raketno Yadernoi Napadieni which means nuclear missile attack not a great code name 
The idea of Ryan was to use spies in London and Washington to gather proof that the West was indeed planning a nuclear strike against the Soviets. Of course, they weren't, so there was no evidence. But that hardly mattered. Andropov was convinced, and so he set his spies to find signs which reinforced his belief. And that's easy, isn't it? When you think you're developing a cold, for example, then every little sneeze or ache suddenly becomes suspect. It suddenly becomes proof that you're indeed coming down with something. And so spies watched for signs of nuclear war and everything they observed and reported back to Moscow became suspect and was translated into proof that war was coming. And that proof only reinforced Soviet paranoia. And as the paranoia grew higher and higher, the spies were told, give Ryan your complete attention, high priority, find signs that war is coming. And they found more and more signs, and those were fed back to Moscow, and so we had a vicious circle. Ryan kept feeding itself, kept reinforcing itself, and telling the Soviet leadership that war was coming. So what signs were they looking for? Well, obvious things like military preparation or the evacuation of key personnel from cities. They also looked for things we've discussed in previous podcast episodes, such as the emptying of hospitals or the stockpiling of blood. The the blood aspect actually creates a bit of a funny story. Ben McIntyre, in his excellent book, The Spy and the Traitor, and I can't recommend that to you enough, points out that Ryan directed its spies to observe the price of blood. I'll read you an extract here from the book. The oddest injunction was to monitor the level of blood held in blood banks and report if the government began buying up blood supplies and stockpiling plasma. One important sign that preparations are beginning for Ryan could be increased purchases of blood from donors and the prices paid for it. Discover the location of the several thousand blood donor reception centres and the price of blood and record any changes. If there is an unexpectedly sharp increase in the number of blood donor centres and the prices paid, report at once to the centre. McIntyre goes on to say, In the West, of course, blood is donated by members of the public. The only payment is a biscuit and sometimes a cup of tea. The Kremlin, however, assuming that capitalism penetrated every aspect of Western life, believed that a blood bank was in fact a bank where blood could be bought and sold. No one in the KGB outstations dared to draw attention to this elemental misunderstanding. In a craven and hierarchical organisation, the only thing more dangerous than revealing your own ignorance is to draw attention to the stupidity of the boss. So there we are, one of the signs that nuclear war was drawing near, one of the signs that Ryan ordered its spies to look out for, was a fluctuation in the price of blood. Not realising for a second that there is no such thing, in Britain at least, as a price for blood, it's donated out of goodwill. 
Another strange thing they had to look out for was how many lights were burning in government buildings at night. In London, KGB spies would stand in the street and observe whether lights were burning late into the night in government buildings. Because if they were, that was a sign that nuclear war was coming because it meant, of course, that politicians and civil servants were in there burning the midnight oil, drawing up plans for nuclear holocaust. But as anyone, any normal person might tell you, no, lights on late at night in an office building probably just means the cleaners are in doing a night shift. Again from Ben McIntyre's excellent book, a similarly close eye should be kept on slaughterhouses. If the number of cattle killed at abattoirs increased sharply, that might indicate that the West was stockpiling hamburgers prior to Armageddon. So, late night light bulbs, blood and hamburgers, these were the reports that Ryan agents were sending back to Moscow as proof that we were planning a nuclear strike. From our side, it seems laughable. But let's try and remember, or let's try and understand as far as we can, what it must have been like to be deep in the Kremlin, wrapped up in paranoia, stricken with horrible memories of 1941, and being half demented in your furious belief that this must not happen again, not on your watch. Well, we all know how the story ends. There was no plan for a nuclear war. Ryan was started and fuelled purely by paranoia. And the Cold War didn't end until the Americans and the Soviets both had leaders who could sit down together and talk. Now, I don't want to sound like a hippie or a dreamer, but it does seem obvious that the two men, the two sides, had to talk, had to try and understand the other side. The West had to accept the Soviets' fear of surprise attack and try to understand where it came from. There's a line in Reagan's diary where he confides that he's perplexed by the Soviets' constant paranoia and their never-ending expectation of invasion. He writes, What the hell do they have that anyone would want? And to me that just shows the total lack of understanding between the two sides. Reagan is viewing war and invasion as something acquisitive. We'd only invade so that we could take stuff, win stuff. And what the hell have the Soviets got? Whereas the Soviets knew from bitter experience that you don't need to have stuff, you don't need to be rich for an enemy to roll its tanks in and kill millions and millions and millions of your people. Remember the book that I'm drawing a lot of information from for this episode was The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre and also the books of Svetlana Aleksevich. You can follow me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain where I'm always recommending brilliant nuclear and Cold War books and you can also contact me there if you have any questions about the podcast. And if you have time, it would be good if you could leave this podcast a review wherever you happen to listen to it, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc. A review would be very helpful, thank you. Or just spread the word with others about this podcast, if you enjoy it, if enjoy is the right word. 
let others know about it and get other people into our nuclear club. Before I go, I want to thank some of my patrons. Remember, if you like my work, you can um, sign up to my Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Thank you, of course, to everyone who donates money each month. This week, I'm going to give a shout-out to the following. Viv Huddy, The No Name Kid, Tara Moore, Steve Sace, Simon Reed, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Sarah Brassington, Sam Marco, Rose Jameson, Richard Lewis, Rob Johnson, Phil Catling, Paul Maxwell-Walters and Nick Packham. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next Sunday with another episode.